I'm going to be reading in Judges, um, chapter 7. I'm going to read kind of an interesting passage, 1 through 8, and then we're going to skip down to 19, 19 through 23. And when I finish, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond with thanks be to God, because yes, indeed, this is the inspired word of God. Um, Judges, chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morai in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midians into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So we brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Every one who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he set all the rest of, the camp of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Then there's some good stuff like dream interpretation and Jedi mind tricks. And we're going to go down to Judges 19. So Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beshetah, toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Merah, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, and from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for these stories that give us hope and give us a vivid imagination. Father, make us bold and make us followers of you. Salvation belongs to you, Father. May we never forget that. Be with Kyle as he shares your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, Melanie. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Did you guys have a good 4th of July? Um, my name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. I've met a few of you. You're here for the first time. Welcome to Living Stones. We are a church that loves going through the Bible. 
We love seeing how the whole Bible points to Jesus, and we love worshiping God for what he's done for us. And so that's why we sing to God. Uh, when we're singing to him, we're really, that's like praying to him and, and giving him praise. That's why you see people raising their hands to God. They're not airing out their armpits. They're giving him praise, just like you do at a football game when you lift up your hands because your team has scored a touchdown. How much more should we do that if we have a good God? And so that's what we're doing. That's why you're going to hear people saying things like amen, which just means yes, I agree, or hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. You guys are welcome to do that in this service because this is a worship service. Amen? All right. So we are in a fun story today of the the latter half of the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. So, or 7 and 8, I should say. So if you don't have a Bible open, grab one of the ones around the room. And open up to uh, Judges chapter 7, which is going to be on page 206 in those Bibles. And uh, we are going through the book of Judges, uh, just verse by verse. And we are calling this series, Only God Can Judge Me. And the reason for that is that phrase is a phrase that we use a lot of times when we're trying to tell other people to get off our back. We say, how dare you tell me how to live my life? Only God can judge me. And what we're really saying when we say that phrase is, I have the right to do whatever I want. Nobody has the right to tell me how to live. And what the whole book of Judges is about is how bad things get when humans live with that kind of attitude. When humans do what is right according to their eyes rather than God's eyes, it always leads to a downward spiral of death and destruction. And that is what happens in this book. Now, today, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, chapter 8 is the turning point for the whole book. So far, it's been kind of fun and kind of interesting, but after today, it just starts getting really, really bad and ugly. Because, once again, when we do what's right in our own eyes, things lead to death and destruction. Today's passage is kind of fun. It's half good and half bad. And... uh, I was thinking of something this last week when I was camping with my family. Um, I have two little boys, and my sister has a little boy. And we've been saying to them, because they're little and cute, we just say, hey, show us your guns. And my little nephew, White, he goes like this, welcome to the gun show. (laughs) And it's innocent, and it's really cute, but it shows us something about our human nature, doesn't it? Because we never say to our little boys or our little girls, show us your weakness. We never say to one another, show me all your flaws. We always say, show me your strengths. And we grow up in a society, and it's just ingrained in our nature, where we think that we need to be strong. It's seen, as commentator Dale Davis says, in all of our advertising. Buy this product, and you'll be a better you. Buy this Ford truck, and you'll be tougher. (laughs) Buy these cigarettes, and you'll be sexier. Buy this soda and your life will be more amazing. (laughs) We are always highlighting things that are strong. And we're always giving a call to one another to show your strengths, not your weaknesses. And what this produces in our minds and our hearts is this, is that we are not valuable if we are weak. Therefore, we grow up thinking that God has no... um, value in us if we're weak. We take this into our spirituality, saying that God will only use us if we're those superhero strong Christians. 
But the good news of the gospel is that God does not think the way we do. God's method is different than ours. And what we see in the text today is this, is that God uses weak servants, not strong heroes. Contrary to what a lot of people say in Christianity or in religion in general, life is not about being strong and gaining your way to God. Rather, it's about being weak and falling into his arms. God uses your weakness. And in fact, unless you're well acquainted with your weakness and are okay with your weakness, you will not be used by God. Because God uses weak servants, not strong heroes. And that's basically how this passage breaks up. So the first section in this is Gideon being a weak servant. And then it turns bad because he starts to think that he's a strong hero. And so let's look at the first section today. God uses weak servants. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the, in the valley. So what's happening right away is that Gideon is, has raised an army. And he's going up to fight against the Midianites. The reason for this is because God has promised to his people Israel that he would give them this land. And he would give them this, the, the promised land. He would, he would allow them to live in that land with blessing as long as they were faithful to him and his covenant. But if they rejected his covenant, God said that he would drive them out and he would curse them. Now the reason he's giving them this land is twofold. Number one, because God had made a promise that the savior of the world would come from this land and this nation. And so God is being faithful to his promise. But the, the second reason is that the people in the land were really terrible people. The Midianites and the Amalekites, who they're going up to fight, were known for uh, punishing people, putting them into harsh slavery, for murdering, for raping, and for even sacrificing their own children to false gods. And so, they were, and so God giving his people this land is twofold. It's one, him fulfilling his promise, and two, him bringing his justice. And so God is saying, these people are oppressing you. Israel at the time is a bunch of uh, oppressed slaves, and God is about to give them this great delivery. And so because of their oppression, they cry out to God, and God gives them a leader, a deliverer. And so far, all the deliverers have been these really strong men, but not Gideon. Gideon is not like Braveheart or John Wayne. He's a fearful farmer. He's the last guy that you would expect God saying, yep, you're the guy to be a leader. But God chooses those who are weak to shame those who are wise. And so that's what we see here. God raises up Gideon. He's got this army. He's this fearful farmer. And he's going up in battle against the Midianites. Now, the Midianite and Amalekite army combined is over 135,000 men. And Gideon is able to muster... 32,000 men. So the odds are stacked against them, to say the least. Um, in verse 12 of chapter 7, if you were to go ahead and read that, it says that the Midianite army is as many as locusts in abundance. They have camels without number, and they're, they're as many as the sand as the seashore in abundance. So in other words, it's just a buttload of people. <laughs> And so Gideon has this little army of 32,000 men going up against this giant army. These men have no uh, horseback. They have no cavalry. These other guys have horses and camels. 
It's just the odds are stacked against them. So what is the first thing that God does to Gideon's army? Does he make them strong? No, he makes them even weaker. Look at verse two. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give, you in, give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Thou therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from the Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Did you see what God just did there? He said, yeah, Gideon, the Israelite army is too big. You'd expect him to say the opposite, wouldn't you? The Midianite army is too big. But God says, no, your army is too big, and here's the reason why. Verse 2 gives us the interpretation for the rest of the chapters. Because if you guys gain victory with 32,000 men, I know that you will claim the victory as your own, and you won't give me the credit. And what it exposes is that in every one of our human hearts, there's a natural tendency to take the glory of God, the glory that belongs to him alone, and attribute it to us. And so what God does first is he gives them a necessary reduction. He lowers the amount of soldiers they have so that at the end of the day, the only people they could give credit to, the only person they could give credit to in this victory is not Gideon, not the army, it's God himself. And so there's a necessary reduction. So first thing God does is he says, tells Gideon to tell all the soldiers, any of you guys scared? And 22,000 of them are like, yeah, we have 32,000, they have 135,000, we're scared. And Gideon says, okay, you guys go home. All the scaredy cats leave. Now, what God is doing in that is this. In Leviticus, God gave a law saying that the way that his people would fight war is that he wouldn't make those soldiers who were scared fight. So there's a command in Leviticus saying that if any soldiers are scared before they go to battle, they're to go home. Unlike, that's unlike all the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations would make the soldiers fight whether they were scared or not. And what God is saying in this to us is this. I will bring victory, but it's going to be my way, not your way. It's going to be the ways of heaven, not the ways of the world. And so God has compassionate for those of us who are scared and fearful. And so that's what he does. He sends them home. So he reduces down to 10,000. Then God does another reduction. And we see this in verses 4 through 8. Let's read that together. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. You're like, really, God? Too many? 10,000? Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. Anyone whom I say, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all of the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hand and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Okay, so do you see what God just did? God says, I'm going to reduce your number again. So he says to Gideon, here's how I want to reduce that. I want you to go up to the, the spring, and I want you to tell all your men to drink some water. So the men who get down on their chest like this and drink separate into one group, 
And the men who kneel down and take water like this separate into another group. So God separates them. There was nearly all the men, except for 300, got down on their chest. 300 of them knelt down and scooped water up with their hand and lapped it out of their hand. God says, okay, take the 300. Send everybody else home. Now, some theologians have like really tried to say like, whoa, God chose the strong warriors, those who were vigilant and watching out for their army. I don't think that's what was happening at all. I think God was just saying, I'm reducing it down to 300 to show the world that salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. That's who it belongs to. And so... Um, what we see here is God reducing this army down to 300 so that they would defeat 135,000 men. It's the original 300 story. Hollywood stole it from the Bible. Um, think about that, though. That is one Israelite warrior for every 450 Midianite warriors. The awe, it's impossible. This is the true mission impossible. Um, and what God is showing us here is this, is that God will make us weak to remind us that salvation is about his glory, not ours. He will make us weak to show us that it's about his glory. It's not about your glory. It's not about our glory. So that's the first thing is he makes Israel weak. The second thing he does is he meets them in the midst of their weakness. Gideon was a fearful farmer before. How do you think he's doing now? He's going up into this impossible battle. And so look at God's compassion towards Gideon in verse 9. It says, That same night the Lord said, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given, you into, I've given them into your hand. But if you are afraid, go down. Go down to the camp with Perah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Perah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Malachites, and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. So did you see what God did there? Gideon, the fearful army, fearful farmer, he's getting ready. He has 300 men to go up against this impossibly large army. The mission is impossible. And God says to him, all right, Tonight's the night I'm going to give you victory. But if you're still scared, go down to the edge of your camp, with the edge of their camp with your servant, and I'll give you a little bit of assurance that I'm with you. So Gideon and his servant Pura go down to the edge of the camp, and they hear two soldiers talking. One of the enemy soldiers says to his comrade, he says, hey, I just had this dream that a cake of barley came in and destroyed our whole camp. And the other uh, comrade was like, that's Gideon. And the reason why is because Gideon was a barley farmer. <laughs> and so, I mean, imagine that. That's kind of a funny dream, isn't it? A huge, your army gets destroyed by cake. <laughs> just like this cake just comes in and destroys your army. 
and the interpretation was correct. And God was giving Gideon this one last sign that he was with them. Isn't God good? God didn't have to do this. God could have just said, I told you so, go do it. But instead, God understands who he's working with. And that's what you guys need to understand. When God, when we feel weak and we feel scared and we feel fearful, God understands. And God is faithful to give us the strength that we need in order so that we can be obedient. God never sends his soldiers out to war without equipping them with what they need. He always gives us his presence. And so he, he reminds them that he's with them and that the victory really is going to belong to them. So then what we see here is Gideon comes up with an absurd battle plan. And this just shows us this truth that is taken in the Old Testament. The absurd battle plan shows us that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So God makes them weak, assures them that he's with them in their weakness, and then he shows them that his power is shown to be perfect in weakness. So look at the battle plan here in verses 16. Um, and it says this, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars and torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. That is the battle plan. Pretty absurd. Here's the battle plan. Gideon says, okay, guys, here's how we're going to defeat the enemy. We are going to take trumpets and torches. And we're going to light the torches, but we're going to put uh, pots on top of the torches so then we can be, really be sneaky. We can sneak up onto them. And we're going to sneak up to the edge of the camp and we're going to blow our trumpets, and then we're going to break our pots, and then we're going to say, for the Lord and for Gideon. That's the battle plan. No swords are mentioned, just trumpets and torches. <laughs> and so if you were to read chapter 19 through, uh, or verses 19 through 23, that's what they do. They sneak up. This is the craziest battle plan in the whole Bible. They sneak up, they smash the pots, they blow the trumpets, they shout and yell, and look at what it says in verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Bithshida, toward Zerara, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. Then the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh and pursued after Midian, a.k.a. God granted victory. So this crazy battle plan works. And it says in verse 22 that it doesn't work because Gideon was strong. It doesn't work because these 300 guys were like super Navy SEALs. It works because the Lord granted victory. His power is shown to be perfect in our weakness. And so what then pursues, ends up happening is this, is Gideon calls out these other Israelite tribes to come and join them. They chase the army, they defeat the army, and then they take all the plunder. So what this, the big idea for us is this, is that salvation works like this. God does the work, his people get the riches. He does all the work, and he gives all the riches to his people. So that's the story. And we might be asking the question, what the heck does this have to do with us in 2018, Sparks, Nevada? Well, surely God is not asking you to go kill your enemies. 
God is not asking you to take trumpets and torches to work and come against your boss. It's important if we're going to learn from this story that we understand the whole narrative of the scriptures. You see, hundreds and hundreds of years before this story happened, God had made a promise. He made the promise that because this world is so messed up, he would send a savior, somebody to come in and save his people, to, to die for their sins. And so Gideon is accomplishing uh, part of that mission because this savior was supposed to come from a particular nation, the nation of Israel, and from a particular land, the area of the promised land. And so that's Gideon's mission. God is, in this time in Bible history, God is giving his people the land. That is the mission. But a thousand years after this event happened, that savior came. His name is Jesus. And when Jesus came, what did he do? He lived perfectly on behalf of his people. He died for his people. Then he resurrected for his people. And his people weren't just those who were Israelite. They were people of all nations. And so when Jesus came, he instituted a new time and a new era, a new covenant. And when Jesus came, he, didn't, he doesn't say, now go out and kill your enemies. What does he say? Go out and love them. Show them compassion. Share with them the message of how they can be reconciled with God. And so we now live in a different age. You cannot read this and say, this is our job. This is where the crusades went wrong. The Christians read stories like this and said, this is what we need to do. We need to go kill all our enemies. But that's wrong because you're not understanding the whole story of the Bible. Now we're in a new time period where Jesus is saying, I want you to go out and share the gospel with people, love your enemies, and see them be reconciled to God. So we have a different mission, but the mission is still just as absurd, isn't it? Because after Jesus resurrected, before he ascended back up into heaven, he looked at the 120 of his disciples who were fishermen and ex-notorious sinners and ex-prostitutes and just normal, broken, messed up people like you and me. And he said to 120 of his followers, I want you guys to go change the world and go to all nations and tell them about the message of what I've done. And I bet you that Peter... And Mary, they all just looked at each other and said, we're the plan? <laughs> like, we're God's plan, A, to go to the ends of the earth? That sounds a little absurd, doesn't it? Well, we sit here in Sparks, Nevada, as evidence that God's plan worked. As absurd as it sounds. And so, how can we learn from this story? Here's what we can learn. We can learn the principle of this. That God is working through our weakness. That even though the mission is absurd, he is with his people. And he will accomplish his mission. As Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so it gives us three points of application for you as your mission is not to go kill your enemies. Your mission is to share Jesus' love with them. So how do you do that? Number one, this. You need to embrace your weakness and stop trying to be a spiritual hero. Those of you who have been a Christian for a long time, and those of you who are really zealous right now, here's, hear me clearly. You need to embrace your weakness and stop trying to be a spiritual hero. Look at the story of Gideon. Who does God use? Not a Navy SEAL Christian. He uses a fearful farmer. And that should give us encouragement. Because a lot of us think, we think this, man, 
I want to be used by God. I want my friends and family to know Jesus. I want to be a person who spreads the love of Jesus at my workplace or my neighborhood, but I'm just not smart enough. I'm just not bold enough. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't have all the answers to the questions. You ever thought this before? Like, I'm not courageous enough. You know, as a pastor, many people come up to me and say this. They say, Pastor, I need you to tell my friend about Jesus. And I'm always like, why don't you tell them about Jesus? (laughs) And they're like, but you know more than I do. And I say, but God placed you in their life, not me. And you know enough to become a Christian. You certainly know enough to share them the message of Christianity. (laughs) You see, God uses those who are weak. And when we admit our weakness, he shows up. And so the first step to being used by God is you need to embrace your weakness and stop trying to be a spiritual hero. It's okay that you're weak because that's where God shows up. Um, The second thing that we need to do is this, is we need to know that God is already at work. You're simply invited to his party. A lot of Christians, we even say prayers like this, Holy Spirit, we invite you to join us today. You don't need to invite God to show up. He's already here. He's inviting us to show up with him. It's quite the opposite. We don't invite God to the party. He's having a party and inviting us. We don't invite God to join our mission. He has a mission since before the foundations of the world. He invites us to join his, and that should give us great confidence. You would be amazed at how many people, once they find out that I'm a pastor, they start talking to me about spiritual things. And I I just, I, I take that as encouragement because for so long, I didn't want to share the message of Jesus because I thought that people wouldn't want to hear it. But now I'm learning that I've been a pastor for a little while, and as soon as I, if I'm on an airplane, I'm like, what do you do? And I'm like, okay, here we go. I better get ready to have a conversation. <laughs> well, I'm a pastor. And then they just open up their whole life. I've been thinking about God. Can you pray for me? And this happens a lot when people just learn that there's Christians around them because people really are thinking about spiritual things because God is at work ahead of us. He is at work. And so when we believe that he's at work, just like God showed Gideon, he brought Gideon down to the edge of the camp and he showed them that he gave them this dream and he said, listen, man, I'm already at work. Now you can have confidence. So whenever you have fear, whenever you're a coward, whenever you feel like I just can't be faithful, you need to remember that God is already at work ahead of you. He's already at work. The third thing that we can take from this is this, is that we need to remember very clearly that salvation belongs to God, not us. If you think that salvation belongs to you, you're either going to try to force God into people's hearts, which is impossible, or you're never going to take action because you won't ever think you're good enough. And the absurd battle plan shows us this. The fact that God grants victory to 300 men against an army of 135,000 shows us that salvation belongs to him and him alone, and he can do whatever he wants. I think that there's a story in our church Uh, at Living Stones that reminds me of this. It's the story of a a woman named Carrie. Carrie started coming to our church when we were back at Mendive Middle School. Raise your hand if you were with us when we were at Mendive Middle School. Just raise your hand. Okay, so about half the room. Um, Carrie joined us when we were at Mendive Middle School, and and there she became a Christian, and she got baptized. Recently, she's moved away, and she's still following the Lord. But the way that Carrie became a Christian is she was driving one Sunday and her car broke down in front of a Spanish-speaking church. 
And so she didn't know where to go. And so these people from the Spanish-speaking church came out and helped her. And they brought her in. They said, hey, we'll, we'll take care of you, whatever. And she sat through the service. And she walked out with tears in her eyes because she's never been loved like that before. And she just knew that even though she didn't understand a word of the service, she knew that God was real. So she said to herself, I need to go to church next week. There's a church that's right by my house. I see its sign get puts up every weekend. It's called Living Stones. I'll go try that. So she comes to Living Stones. She hears the message of Jesus in the language she can understand and then eventually becomes a Christian and gets baptized. Had we not known all of that backstory, it would have been easy for all of us to take the credit. The music was so good that day. <laughs> Must have had a great sermon. Oh, we showed fantastic hospitality. But reality is God had been working long before. And it was God who had their car break down. It was God who showed her love and, and showed her the, the power of the scriptures, even though she couldn't understand them. It was, it was God who had orchestrated every moment of her life leading up to that point so that she could know her need for Jesus. And so we need to remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. And what that means for us is this. It means when we remember that, we will not take the credit for God doing work. We will see people meet Jesus. We will see people change. We will see people healed, but we won't take the credit. And then we also won't try to freak out. We won't be all worried if people don't believe because we know that it's not our job to change people's hearts because salvation belongs to the Lord. And so you get to be a more free Christian when you believe that. And so God uses weak servants, not strong heroes. That's what we see Gideon being in this first part of the story. But now there's a transition, and this is where things start to go bad for the rest of the book. And so I'm sorry, we're just going to be a depressed congregation for the next four or five weeks. <laughs> things go bad because Gideon forgets that salvation belongs to the Lord. He forgets that he's nothing but a scared farmer, and he starts to get a big head, and he thinks that he's a strong hero. And so we see this in two ways. The first way we see this is in a change of attitude. And then the second way we see this is in a sham proclamation that God is king. So we're going to cover a lot of text here. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time. We're going to kind of helicopter fly over it, but I'm going to explain what happens. So first of all, we see the change in attitude. Gideon shifts from being a weak servant who depends on God to an arrogant leader who tries to take matters into his own hands. And so in verses 24 through 25, what we see is this. Gideon's army is chasing the Midianite army, and they invite the, another tribe of Israel to come and join them in the battle, the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim goes, and they conquer those kings. They go and capture those kings, and they kill those kings. But then in verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Ephraim comes back and gets mad at Gideon, and they say, how come you didn't invite us to the war? because they wanted some of the glory too. They say, how come you didn't invite us to the war? And Gideon says to him, what do you mean? We have victory. Why are you complaining? You just captured the king. Is that not better than being invited to the war? And so then they say, okay, you're right. And so then Gideon and his army keep chasing the other kings. They keep, there's like four or five kings, so they keep chasing them. And in verses four through nine, what you see is this. They go to a fellow Israelite town called Succoth, Everybody say Succoth. I'm going to keep you awake during this part, all right? Okay, they go to an Israelite town called Succoth, and they say, hey, we need you to give food and provisions for our army. And they, 
And the town of Succoth, their fellow brothers and sisters, say, no, we're not going to do that. Why would we give you food and provisions until, like, if you don't have the kings yet? We'll do that once you gain the victory. So then Gideon gets ticked. And he said, I'm going to catch those kings, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to teach you guys a lesson. So then he goes to another town, the town of Penuel. And in Penuel, they say the same thing that Succoth said. No, we're not going to give you food and provisions until you capture the kings. And then Gideon gets even madder, and he says, fine, I'm going to go catch the kings, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to tear down your wall. And so that's what Gideon does. He goes and he catches the kings. And the first thing he does is he comes back to Succoth, and he finds out who the elders are, the elders of the city, and then it says that he takes them outside with thorns and he fillets their flesh and teaches them a lesson. Do you see the arrogance of this? Before Gideon was a weak servant, now he's, taking, he's, he's acting in his rage and his anger because things aren't going his way. He's acting like a two-year-old. And then he goes to Penuel and does something even worse. Because they didn't help him out, not only does he tear down their wall, he kills all the men inside. This is not an enemy city. This is a city that belongs to Israel. He enacts civil war on his own people, takes vengeance into his own hands, and in his rage kills all the men. And you are left reading that part going, what the heck happened? At first, you're like, I kind of like Gideon. He's a coward, but God really works with him. Now you hate him because he's a jerk, okay? And then Gideon, the two kings that he captured, he takes them and he puts them on trial. They confess to killing a bunch of people and his brothers. So it gives you a little understanding of maybe why he's so upset. And he has his son. He says, I want you to go kill the kings. And his son is just a boy and was too scared and so he wouldn't do it. So then Gideon takes the sword and kills them. So what this, this section is showing us is this, is that all of a sudden we have this great shift in mindset of Gideon. Instead of being humble and dependent on God, he becomes arrogant and proud and thinks he needs to take matters into his own hands. And so there's a change in attitude. And then we get to verse 30, 22 and it gets even worse because he makes a sham proclamation that God is king. So let's finish up by reading this last little section. It says this, the men of Israel after this great victory said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Israel, after this great victory, they say, Gideon, we want you to be our king. We've never had a king. You're going to be the first king. We want you to be our king. And not just you. We want all your sons to be kings. We want a dynasty. We're so grateful for what you've done. And at first, Gideon answers well, or so it seems to be. He says, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And right then you're like, right on, Gideon. You tell him. You tell him that salvation belongs to God. He is our true king. But then what proceeds to happen is really bad. It gets really ugly. Because what we see is that Gideon professes that God is king with his mouth, but with his life he goes on to do several things where he professes with his actions that he is king. So verse 24, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from the spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. 
And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 43 pounds. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued uh, before the people of Israel. And they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubabel, that's another name for Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And God, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abysrites. So here's what happens. I know that was a lot of words and names. But here's what goes on. Gideon says, I will not be your king. God is king. That's what he says with his mouth. But with his actions, he proceeds to live like he is the king. He does five things. First of all, he requests all of their spoil. This is something that a king would do. He would say, okay, you guys got rich. I want you to give it all to me. And so they willingly did. 43 pounds of gold, not to mention all the other things. Then he makes an ephod. You're like, what the heck is an ephod? An ephod is a vest. It's a holy vest. It's a vest that God said his priests were to wear. And on the vest would be 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, representing that when that priest went into the presence of God, he bore God's people on his heart. And then it also had two places for the lots that would, they would cast to make decisions. And um, that was the ephod. Now the ephod and the priest were at another city, the city of Shiloh. And that's where God's people were supposed to go to worship. But Gideon says, no, no, no. If you want to connect with God, you don't go there and do it God's way. You come to me and do it my way. You come to me if you want to hear the voice of God. That's pretty arrogant. And, and then not only does he do that, he makes it with all this adornment of pagan, like he makes it a pagan idol. Okay, so that's what he does. Then the third thing he does is he makes his home the capital. It says in verse 29 that he went and lived in his house. If you read it in the original language, it says basically he sits on his throne in his house. And that's not his toilet. <laughs> he sits on his throne in his house. So he said, I will not be king. God is king. But he has a throne in his house where he sits and rules the people. That's kind of saying something. Then he takes on a harem, something only kings did. And by the way, God gave a command in Leviticus, if there to be a king, he should not have a harem because God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman, one lifetime. And so he gave a harem. And so Gideon not only takes himself as the king, he says, and I'm a king above God's law. And then he puts the nail in the coffin by having a son named Abimelech. And guess what Abimelech means? My dad is king. So here we have this proclamation of this guy saying, I'm not the Lord. I'm not a king. God is the king. But with his actions, he proclaims something totally different. And it begs for us the question, have we done the same? Actions speak louder than words, don't they? Many of us say, Jesus is my Lord. We come to church and raise our hands to him when we sing songs to him. We say he's my king and savior. We get it tattooed on our bodies and we wear crosses on our necks. But what does our life really say? 
what would your neighbor say about your life? Who would the people that live with you say really is your Lord? If we're honest, not only do we identify with Gideon in the beginning of the story, we also identify with him in the end, and we don't like that because we're all a bunch of walking hypocrites. It is so easy to fall into the trap to say with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for 20 plus years, but with our life to live like we're the Lord, isn't it? And like Gideon, we do this when we forget our weakness. The reason that Gideon fell into this trap is because he started to think that he was strong. He tried to be a strong hero. But he forgot that he was just a weak servant. And so I said the quote earlier from John Newman, he forgot that Christianity and life with God is not about rising to him in our strength, it's about falling to his arms in our weakness. And so this story gives us a warning not to be like Gideon, but it also exposes our great need because the truth is we all are like Gideon. It exposes our need that you're supposed to get to the end of this and say, what the heck, I really like this guy. How did he fall? I guess even the best men are still men at best. Will God ever give us a greater ruler? Because even if I look at my own heart, I'm not a good ruler. And the answer is later on that ruler would come. The ruler who would be above the law but would lower himself under the law. The ruler who would not make people bow in homage to him, he would bow in service to them. The ruler who would not take advantage of other people but would lay his life down to serve other people, this ruler is named Jesus. And I think it's really fascinating that our king's throne is not a place in his house, it's a cross. When you read the story of the cross, it talks about it as his coronation of him rising to his throne. And it's God saying to us, I am the ruler that you all need. Because you all are a bunch of proud, selfish rulers. I'm the, I'm the selfless, loving ruler that you need. And in Jesus, we see God not only rising on the cross, we saw, see him also raising from the grave so that he could heal all of us. You see, Gideon wanted people to continually serve him. But Jesus, even in his resurrection, is continually serving us because he's saying, now you can be healed of your faults and your brokenness. He's the better ruler. And so Jesus, as the better ruler, invites you today to come to him. But he doesn't want you to come to him in your strengths. In fact, he said this. He said, I'm like a doctor. And those who think they have no weakness have no need for a doctor. Only those who are sick know their need for a doctor. He said, I came to heal the sick, not the well. So you only have a place with Jesus if you admit that you're weak. The question is, is do we have the courage to do that? That's all of our invitation today. And if you are here and you say, yes, I know how messed up I am. I know how broken I am. I know how I'm scared I am. I know that I'm a, I'm a disaster. You have a place with God in heaven. You have a place with him here, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord, Help us to understand our weakness. Help us to not try to hide our weakness, to not try to avoid our weakness, but to embrace it because only in embracing our weakness can we give it to you. Only in admitting our weakness can we be healed by you, the great doctor. And so Jesus, the great physician, will you heal our souls? Will you bless us? Where we need to be humbled, humble us. Where we're living like Gideon, rebuke us. 
and where we're scared like getting at the beginning of the story, comfort us. We ask for this in your great name. Amen.